Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School lesson for the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany. That's February 12th, 2023. And this year in Sunday School, we're making our way through the gospel readings for the given Sunday. And this week, as Epiphany draws to its, near to its end anyway, um, we're continuing the Sermon on the Mount. So two weeks ago, we had the start of Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, uh, where Jesus gave us the Beatitudes. Last week, we had Matthew 5, verses 13 through 20, as Jesus gave his disciples, his followers, an identity and a calling as the salt of the earth, as the light of the world. And now Jesus is going to move on and talk about um, Christian obedience in thought, word, and deed. Now, a couple things to, to, to review before we get into the reading. First off, let's talk about the, the horizontal and vertical effects of sin. It's kind of awkward terminology, um, but, but horizontal effects of sin have to do with the, the consequences of our sins on other people around us. Vertical consequences have to do with the, um, the consequences of our sin before God. So, um, horizontal effects of sin are before others, affecting others. Vertical consequences of sin are before God. And we'll be talking about the difference between those two as we look at this text um, and some of the commandments among the Ten Commandments. One other note before we begin is that this is... Oh, kind of a discussion topic among people who study the book of Matthew. What do people expect to hear when Jesus preaches a Sermon on the Mount? Now, there's one theory that since Matthew is writing to his fellow Jews, and since Moses declared that the Messiah would be a prophet like him, When people suspect Jesus of being the Messiah, they expect him to sound a lot like Moses. And that, uh, one of the key arguments for that is the start of this section here, the Sermon on the Mount, when, uh, when Jesus starts to quote commandments and then add to them. Others are not so much into that idea that they're looking for a second Moses, but Jesus is simply uh, going about his work of explaining how the law really works. I guess in truth, we can't know for sure what the people are expecting to hear. Nevertheless, Jesus does uh, some things with the Ten Commandments that nobody else has done before. We read elsewhere that when Jesus teaches, his hearers are astonished because he speaks as one with authority. And that is what he does in our gospel reading for this day, because he'll be saying things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And that's really a remarkable thing for for any rabbi to say, because it sounds like he's claiming authority to add to God's word. And of course... That's forbidden to do unless, of course, you are um, God in human flesh, which is what Jesus gives Jesus the authority 
to, uh, to add to the commandments. Anyways, Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 through 37 begins with the first part of verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Now he's about to quote the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. But when he says, you have heard that it was said, who's saying it? He'll be quoting the, uh, the, the fifth commandment, so he's, he's quoting what God said to the people through Moses. But as our gospel reading unfolds, you'll also find out that he's, he's also referring to teachings by other rabbis that the people have heard before as well. So when he says, you have heard it said to those of old, um, he's not just speaking of the giving of the Ten Commandments, but also teachings that, that they've, been, they've been taught since then. As Jesus speaks, both when he quotes what his father says through Moses at Sinai, and when he refers to, to the rabbis who have given different interpretations, he keeps making the law of God more severe. He keeps making the law of God more impossible to keep. So, back to verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. So, just in case Jesus' hearers were thinking they were doing a great job keeping the law because they hadn't killed anybody that day, Jesus' big point is this. If you've merely become angry at somebody, you've already broken the fifth commandment because anger springs from the same sinful root as murder does. Anger at a brother leads to murder, and so um, it, it's both, are, both break the fifth commandment. Now, this is where we want to talk about horizontal and vertical effects or consequences. Vertically, or before God, both anger and murder are the same in that they make the one who commits them unholy. Both anger and murder condemn the sinner who does them. Horizontally, however, there's a big difference. Anger might be unpleasant, but it doesn't take a life. Murder does. So, as I've said to people before, if you're angry at me, I don't like it, but that's a lot different from running me down in the parking lot with your car. Before God, any kind of sin condemns, but horizontally, in relation to our neighbor, different intensities of sin, if you will, have different consequences. All right, so Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That, uh, that phrase, hell of fire, there, by the way, is um, in Greek, it's Gehenna. 
it's a reference to a, a gulch outside of Jerusalem called um, called Ben Hinnom in the Old Testament, and that is a, a place where Old Testament Israelites who rebelled against God and worshipped the false god Moloch would offer their children as burnt sacrifices to their false god. So just just a horrible place of fire, of idol worship, and of the murder of children in in the midst of idol worship, um, and, and and so this is this is a um, a collection of, of 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 hellish sins that becomes representative of of um, eternal judgment because such sins deserve eternal judgment. The big point here that Jesus is making is that, again, before God, all sins make the sinner unholy and condemned. Jesus goes on then to apply what he said about the fifth commandment to a couple of um, everyday practices. He says, so, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So the the application here is Jesus is saying, so since it's a sin to be angry at your brother and to insult your brother and and, and to, uh, to call him a fool, instead... Be reconciled to your brother. Get rid of that sin, whether it's, it's, it's anger in the heart or a desire to actually wring his neck. The, uh, the setting Jesus uses to make this plea for reconciliation is, um, is, is offerings at the temple. Because if, if someone is, is making an offering at the temple counting on God to to forgive him for his sins, he doesn't want outstanding unrepentant sins to be there. And so Jesus says, if anger at your brother is an unrepentant sin, go be reconciled, then come make your offering before God. Just a note, by the way, this, this, um, this verse, or these verses about leaving a gift at the altar, and, uh, and being reconciled to your brother. I've seen the ver- these verses printed an awful lot on communion registration cards. Not so much anymore, but when I was growing up, that was, um, that was kind of all the rage to have on the registration card. Now, when Jesus gives these, uh, these commands in, in verses 23 and 24 of the text, he's not talking about Holy Communion. Again, he's talking about sacrifices at the temple. Nevertheless, this part holds true for communion. If you have a problem with a brother or sister in Christ, if you're not reconciled, there's some impenitent sin at work. And before you go to the Lord's Supper for the forgiveness of sins, first, go and be reconciled with the one you have differences with. Never should anyone approach God's altar with unrepentant anger in their hearts. 
Jesus' second application here is in verse 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, once again, Jesus is making the plea, be reconciled. And he kind of combines horizontal and vertical effects and consequences in what he says. So come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. That could easily be a, a matter of, of horizontal consequences here. If two Christians have a disagreement, it is far better to be reconciled than to drag each other through the court system. That's just a horrible experience in the first place. That brings shame upon the church of Christians can't be reconciled. And, and it, it leads to a judgment rather than reconciliation. The last verse, though, Jesus switches clearly to eternal consequences, that vertical relationship with God where he says, Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The one who is found guilty of impenitence by God, whether it's murder or merely anger, that one on the last day then is condemned to the prison of hell until he has paid the last penny. And the problem is there's no way to make money in hell. Um, the, the, the meaning Jesus has here is that um, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is, is not saying, and you can do that. You can get a side job and, uh, and work your way out from hell to purgatory to heaven. He's saying, you won't get out till you've paid the last penny, and there's no way to earn the penny to pay. All right, from there, Jesus moves from the fifth commandment to the sixth commandment, where he says, you have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So once again, we have the horizontal and the vertical effects of this sin. Jesus says that lustful thoughts are the same as actually committing adultery. This, of course, is a reference to that vertical relationship with God. All sin condemns a sinner, so lustful thoughts are just as unholy as actual adultery is. Now, horizontally, the relationship between neighbors on earth, adultery is far more serious, has far more consequences than do lustful thoughts. Doesn't make lustful thoughts less sinful, just means the consequences are less than actual adultery is. However, if we're actually concerned about our relationship with God and, and obeying his law, then we're to avoid lustful thoughts as well. So Jesus goes on to give this handy advice in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now that's quite a statement. And if Jesus means it, then why aren't there a bunch of one-eyed, one-handed people walking around to avoid lustful thoughts? Well, Jesus does mean what he says, but let's look at this carefully. First off, does your right eye cause you to sin? Answer, no. Sin comes out of the heart and uses the eyes to look lustfully. Does your right hand cause you to sin? Answer, no. Sin comes out of the heart and uses the hand to commit adultery. All right? So, so if it were so easy to stop sinning, as to get rid of our right eye and our right hand, if, if all of our sinful nature is located in that, that would actually be a pretty easy way to become holy. But you can chop off all your limbs and get rid of all your senses, and you haven't gotten rid of your sin. Next part. Is it better to enter heaven with one eye than hell with two eyes? Or is it better to enter heaven with one hand or to go to hell with all your members? Answer in both cases, far better to enter heaven. One, because you want to avoid hell. And two, upon your arrival in heaven, you've been raised, fully restored, and you've got your eye and your hand back once again. Again, the big point here is that before God, when we're talking about salvation, lust is as bad as adultery. Jesus is giving this law to say, you can't keep it. You need forgiveness. Now, Jesus goes on to give an application related to the sixth commandment with this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this is interesting because the Old Testament speaks briefly of, of divorce in Levitical law. But this quote here is not from the Bible. It's from an, uh, a, a rabbi's teaching somewhere along the way. And in first century Judea, the topic of divorce is a hot one, and there's a, a ton of different interpretations going around. The rabbis will take what the first five books of the Bible say, the Torah, and, and they will do their best to apply what the Torah says. When it comes to divorce, in Deuteronomy 24, divorce is permitted. A man may divorce his wife if she is guilty of a matter of indecency. Great. But what does that mean? In first century Judea, there are two big camps with two different opinions on this. 
The, uh, the more conservative camp says that a matter of indecency means adultery. The more liberal interpreting camp says that a matter of indecency is anything that the husband doesn't like about his wife. If he just gets tired of her, if she, if she burns the stew, that's indecent and he can divorce her. So there's a lot of play among the rabbis as to what it means, what are grounds for divorce. And Jesus quotes not one interpretation or another of, of, of one one can divorce, but gets right to whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, which assumes that God is, is just fine with divorce. Jesus then goes on to say this, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now that is quite a statement. You might expect Jesus to say, if a woman commits adultery, the man may divorce her because she's guilty of adultery. But that's not what Jesus says here. He says, if a man divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality, he makes her an adulteress even if she's not guilty of actual adultery. And likewise, if a man marries a divorced woman, which is almost certain to happen in that culture, he too is guilty of adultery for getting married. Jesus, in saying this, first of all, is pointing to how important marriage is. He's saying that divorce is never God's will or God's intention even though it does happen. Adultery is a terrible effect on marriage. Of course, divorce has a worse effect on marriage because it ends it. A marriage can recover from adultery. A marriage can't recover from divorce because divorce is the death of the marriage. So one of the points here that Jesus is making is that, well, divorce might be a commonplace thing in our culture. God never wills that divorce happens, even if it clearly does. And I think that anyone who has suffered through a divorce, for whatever reason, would agree that it's a it's a terrible thing. As C.S. Lewis said, it's far more like an amputation than the end of a contract. So, back to the text, though, what makes the innocent woman who is divorced by her husband an adulteress? What makes the man who marries her guilty of adultery? The idea here is that even if they have not committed sexual immorality, marriage is supposed to be a lifelong thing. 
And when the woman is cast out of her home, cast out of the marriage by her husband, that marriage is not what it's supposed to be. It's adulterated. And so she is an adulteress because her marriage, through not her doing, is now adulterated. Likewise, the man who marries her by acknowledging that she is divorced and now married to him, he has shared in that recognition that the first marriage is not what it's supposed to be, that it is ruined, and so it is adulterated, and so he is included in that as well. Now, the sin in the verse lies with the first husband who divorces his wife, who casts her out. Nevertheless, the effect of that also falls upon her and her future husband. Now, going through this text briefly in a podcast, I'm not going to try to parse out every situation. The, uh, the big points for our purposes here are that God intends marriage to be a lifelong commitment between husband and wife. And when divorce happens, that marriage, that institution is adulterated and many suffer the consequences for it. Beyond that, it's best to handle um, the topic of divorce individually with the uh, various individuals who have suffered it or need to talk about it. But once again, remember why God gives us his holy law to show us our need for repentance. Now from there, Jesus moves on to the topic of oaths. And he says in verse 33 again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus warns here against swearing by the Lord. And he says, since um, the earth is his footstool and Jerusalem is his city, to to swear by heaven and earth or to swear by the city of Jerusalem is, is as bad as swearing by God's name. He also says, don't swear on your own head either. And, and perhaps the, uh, the big point here is that Jesus is condemning the careless misuse and devaluing of words. Words mean what they say or they ought to. When God speaks, he means what he says. And when God speaks, things happen. When we start to 
emphasize what we say by swearing in God's name or anything else, we're saying our words aren't good enough, they don't have value, and they need to be reinforced by, by God or whatever else. Jesus says, no, make good use of words. Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Now, if that bit of law doesn't condemn everybody, (laughs) I don't know what will. So, with these different topics of murder and anger, of adultery and lust, of divorce, of misuse of words, Jesus is showing his hearers and showing us today our need for forgiveness, our need for repentance, Our various sins will have different consequences against our neighbor horizontally, but they all condemn us before God. Therefore, we should fear God's wrath and not act contrary to his commandments. And when we do, we run quickly to Christ for forgiveness. Really quick then, one big point from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. This is our Old Testament lesson for this Sunday. And we hear Moses addressing the people of Israel. Um, This is what Deuteronomy 30. um, Moses is is close to his death. Joshua is about to take over his role as, as leading the Israelites into the promised land. And Moses is repeating the law to the Israelites one last time before he dies. And he says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 and following, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. That's pretty straightforward. If you keep God's commandments, if you keep his laws, you will receive the blessing that the law promises. The next part, though, that Moses says is, is, is very important. He says in verse 17, But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Now, It would make sense if Moses said, after saying, if you keep the laws, you will keep the land. If he said, if you don't keep the laws, you will lose the land. But that's not quite what he says. Instead, he says, if your heart turns away and you will not hear. And this is what makes this Old Testament reading a great pairing with the gospel lesson. Because remember how Jesus addresses say murder in our gospel reading. You've heard it said, you shall not kill, but if you get angry, you're guilty of, this, of, of, of breaking the fifth commandment. So you have Jesus here saying, I've kept the fifth commandment. I haven't murdered anybody. Oh, wait, 
I haven't kept the fifth commandment because I've had angry thoughts. I kept the fifth commandment, but my heart wasn't in it. So I've also broken the fifth commandment. The same thing happens in Deuteronomy chapter 30. For Moses' hearers, they might be saying, look, I'm keeping the commands and the statutes and the rules on the outside, and so I guess I'm doing what I have to do even if I don't want to. And Moses says, but to keep these commandments, you have to want to. If your heart turns away, you won't keep these commandments. If your heart turns away, you'll follow false gods instead and serve them, and then you will lose the land that God is giving you. So it's not enough to do the outward thing, says Moses. You've got to do it with your heart, or else your heart will lead you astray. And this is the same lesson that Jesus is saying as well. If you don't murder on the outside, that's great. But if your heart isn't into it, you're still sinful. Moses goes on to say in verses 19 and 20, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Now, kind of ironic, after we had Jesus speaking of, of, of oaths, that Moses swears by heaven and by earth, but he's not taking those words lightly. He's speaking God's words saying, this is about heaven and hell and your salvation. So we're not going to ding Moses for swearing by heaven and earth because he means what he says. Second, he calls upon the Israelites to keep the law and says, the Lord is your life. So keep his commandments on the outside and on the inside. You know what happens? The Israelites' hearts turn away from, from God, and so they, they worship false gods and they lose the land. You and I should do our best to keep God's commandments on the outside and on the inside. Nevertheless, we'll still sin because our hearts want to turn away from Him. So remember, God is your life. In fact, Christ died your death to give you his life that you might be forgiven for your sins. Keep God's commands. Your life will go better. Where you fail, confess your sins, rejoice that you're forgiven, and Christ is your life. All right, that concludes our quick look at the uh, Gospel and Old Testament readings for the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany. God bless you as you meditate upon these further. God grants you every good gift if you're teaching this to others. And until we speak again, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Amen.